Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and I uh, want to uh, jump into a new series here, but of course, <clears throat> I do want to mention that uh, we had a great women's retreat this weekend. All of you ladies that went, did you have a good time? I've heard some good things about it, yeah, uh, about 140 of you there this weekend up in New York Springs, and it was awesome. Um, I, got a, uh, I got a text from one of my friends here. Uh, Andy comes to first service. He, he texted me yesterday afternoon. He said, hey, Mark, how did the weekend go as dad without mom around? And uh, if you haven't heard, uh, not so well. Um, <laughs> Friday night, I'll just share it with you in case you, you need to hear it from the horse's mouth. Uh, Friday night, I decided I took the kids. We, we, we had dinner and stuff. And I said, hey, let's go check out the construction site. We do it a couple times a week. Let's go walk around, look at stuff. And uh, so I said, let's go check it out, take a look. And so we went and we were just getting ready to leave. And uh, my little uh, five-year-old Zachary uh, decided he wanted to climb on a, uh, on a forklift and uh, it wasn't um, had the forklift part wasn't totally on the ground and he sprinted, which he's very fast. And he sprinted and he missed this because his forklift was about two inches above his eye line. And he hit that thing in full speed as I turned around to watch this and it clotheslined him um, and slammed his head against the ground. And he immediately starts screaming. I went over and grabbed him and <clears throat> my other two kids are in shock. And, uh, and so am I. And I grab him and I put his head in my chest and I'm just rubbing the back of his head because I mean, I could hear it hit the ground. And I said, you know, you're going to be okay, Zachary. And he's just screaming. And Nathan's like, is there any blood? And I'm like, no, there's no blood. And, and then Zachary pulls his face off and my sweatshirt's covered in blood. Uh, and it's all down his face. And, um, and now I'm like, oh gosh, there's blood. Where's mom? Uh, because I don't do blood and open wounds very well. And I realized, because even as I was holding him, I'm thinking, what happened to his head? Because I mean, he hit a metal bar running, or metal thin, thin little part fast. And so there's no one around, of course, no one in the church. There's no neighbors, blood just streaming down. Now my other two kids are, are it's, not, it's funny, but it's not funny. I mean, they're running in circles and they're just going ballistic because they don't know what happened to Zachary. I mean, he's covered, his face is covered in blood. And, um, and I'm trying to get them to calm down, find snow to stick on his forehead and, um, and without looking at what happened. And um, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I was gonna ring a neighbor's doorbell there that, that I know um, in our back parking lot. And I decided, you know, um, right now, I'll just pay for someone else to look at the wound, not me, uh, and someone to help me with these kids because the other two needed help. And so we got him in the van. Nathan's holding the wound with my sweatshirt. And so we drove up to the emergency room and popped out. And I mean, these are the things that happen when mom's away, right? I mean, and, and as I'm driving, I'm thinking I need to get rid of Nathan and Zachary because I'm telling him in the car, I think Nathan's good. I think Zachary's going to be okay. Head wounds bleed a lot. Um, he's going to be fine. But, you know, Nathan's now like, you're going to need stitches. They're going to put put stitches in your head. And I'm like, shut up. Forgive me, God. Uh, and, um, and, and we get in the building and, Nate, I mean, Nate, you know, he's just, he's, just, he's just trying to process the stress from this because Zachary was trying to get to where Nathan was too, so he felt really bad. Um, and so I'm like trying to think of everyone I can call who are all listening to my wife preach right now at women's retreat. And so I uh, finally found some guys I could think of in my mind that, that lived in Gettysburg because I needed someone there before the doctor came in because I did not want Nathan and Ashton in the room when they started talking to us about what was really going to happen. And um, <clears throat> finally found Sean. It was great. Sean Palmer in our church. He grabbed the other two, sent them home. And um, maybe someday I'll tell you more about that terrible experience that I need counseling from. It was miserable to 
hold your own, oh, it's not even funny, right? I mean, hold your own kid down while he screams, uh, why are you hurting me? And, and uh, it, it, we survived. Zachary's here and he's doing well. Um, and uh, he's a little shorter. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but he survived and, you know, just pray that Jerry doesn't leave anytime soon. Uh, but here's, here's, I, I, here's also why I said that. I know you're going to hear about it, but I mean this. Now, you're going to think I'm like kidding, but this is a full shameless plug. I have no shame in this at all. But I thought about this while I was sitting in the hospital and I'm trying to call. We don't have family that live here. I mean, our family is you. I mean, it's, it's this church. You're our family. And, and I'm thinking through everybody I can call. A lot of people are at the women's retreat, but there's all these other guys. And later on, as people heard about it, they're like, man, you can call me anytime. I'll be right there in one second. And I, and I really thought about the fact that, you know what, to attend to church doesn't mean anything in a time of crisis. I mean, I hope that you learn from Jesus from here and you get closer to him because he's, he's what we need more than anything. But you know, when you go through those times of crisis, you need people that can show up and help you. Do you, do you know what I mean? And so I, I just, I, to me, there's no coincidence that I, I just, I wanted to share it with you today. We start many churches. This is not just some cheesy plug for small groups. I'm telling you, some of you who are going through stuff, we are kids, your health, job situations, you need to do more than just attend a church. You need to develop relationships with people that will come alongside you when you're in those moments. I mean, I had nothing. I mean, Jerry's not around, no family's around, and thank God that I, I know you, and you are like family, and we're like that with you, but I know for some of you, you, you love it here, you love the worship, but you haven't got totally involved yet. I just want to tell you, do it for your own sake. When you go through those moments or someone else goes through a crisis, man, it means the world to someone to have someone come do that. That meant so much to me. Uh, a couple guys showed up just to help with the kids, and so um, I was really thankful for that. So anyway, other than that, we survived. I'm not going to show you a picture of Zachary's head. You can go look at the stitches afterwards if you want. Um, but uh, no thanks, five stitches, that's enough. I'll pass on the rest of that. So uh, get in a mini church. I'm just telling you, don't do life by yourself. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9, all right? Luke chapter 9, uh, and we're starting this new series uh, that we're going to be doing through our mini churches, okay? And uh, one thing, you know, you can now know Zachary, he's five, Nathan's eight, Ashton's three. I, I don't know when it starts with kids, but, but around two or three, they, they develop a love affair with this word that starts with M. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, we just said it when we were kids. But it's the word mime, right? If you have kids, mime. And, and poor Ashton, she's three, your two older brothers, they kind of run and control everything. And so when they lay something down, she grabs it. Doesn't matter if it's, you know, a boy toy, she would care less about it, army men or something. She grabs it and she lets them know right away, mine. And Ashen, or, uh, and Nathan and Zachary are like, that is not yours. And my, my son Nathan, he's like so analytical. He's like, dad gave that to me on July 2nd, two years ago. I'm just like, whoa. Uh, but but he, he just knows. And then they fight and they grab it. No, it's mine, mine, right? And like any good parent, we always remind him every once in a while, none of you own anything. Mom and I bought all of it and we let you use it. And if you keep making these noises while I'm drinking my coffee and trying to have devotions, you will have nothing. And then you can complain about having nothing. Is that just me that says that? Um, so, but it's just, they developed this word mine. And if you remember the, the old original movie, not Dory, but Finding Nemo, do you remember the seagulls? Oh, they're my favorite. Mine, mine, I think, yeah, mine, 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 mine. If you haven't seen that, they, 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 the artists, you know, always think about what animals actually are saying when we just hear noises, and the seagulls are always just walking around, mine, mine, mine. And I, I think that's just something that's innate in kids, but the good news, bad news is that it's not just our kids' problem. It's an adult problem too, isn't it? 
You ever gotten in fight at work or at, at Thanksgiving or in your family with adults because someone thinks something is theirs? Oh man, I mean, I've got a good family, so does Jerry, but there's been fights not with our immediate family, but outskirts of our families over family heirlooms and property because people want to declare they possess things and they will possess it at all costs. And so mine, mine, my mind is something that is within each of us and it's a brokenness. Now, I want you to know something. It's not just kids and adults. We need to probably recognize the fact that we're Americans in this room today. Most of us, I think, probably live here. And because of that, we have a, I think we have an extra boost of this. I'm just, just in my opinion. Uh, we founded this nation on come here and accomplish your dreams. So the very premise of being American is that you can get what you want. And so we got a whole list of things. And we're going to look at them over the next seven weeks that our culture likes to declare are ours. It's my life. It's my time, it's my money, it's my body, it's my plans, it's, it's my talents over and over and over again. You, you, we hear this all the time. They're my rights. And we're going to look at each of these a few weeks before Easter and a few weeks after. Because if you follow Jesus, I, I hate to tell you, but he's changed the rules a bit. <laughs> he's like the parent that says, no, 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 hold on just a minute, you don't own anything, I've given it to you, right? And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not so sure about following him, that's okay. I think, I think you may want to hear this because he, he's got a better way and a better plan to do this than what we do anyway. But even if you aren't following him, he still is the one who's given us all this. And Jesus comes and he totally changes the rules. So this, this sermon series, I'm just going to call very simply, not yours. <laughs> and every week we're going to remind ourselves of something that is not yours. Uh, today we're going to remind ourselves that it's not my life. It's not my life, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Here's, here's 1 Corinthians 6, comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, just half of two of those verses, really, half of 19 and half of 20. You are not your own because you were bought with a price, so glorify God. You are not your own, you've been bought with a price, so glorify God. And so if you're following Jesus, I mean, this is true for everyone. God is the one who's made this world and given us everything we have. But if you're following Jesus, you're at least trying to adhere or, or listen to him and follow him in agreement with what he says. And so we have to acknowledge that, hold on just a minute, we are not our own. And that includes everything. We've been bought with a price, and so our life is to glorify God. And I think you'll see this today, especially if you're here and you're not so sure about this God thing or Jesus thing. I, I, think, he's, I think Jesus knows what he's talking about here. Because to me, this is a real blessing. And, and I'll explain that in a minute. Let, let's define the term to glorify in a minute. It's a great Greek term. It's filled in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. But for, for purposes of this series, the simple definition we'll just use is cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become known or acknowledged. So to cause, to cause this person or thing to become known, acknowledge, the fact that it, it, it has worth, it has dignity. What, what I'm going to really look at today is to make something excellent. And it's not that you're doing it yourself. To make it excellent is to let other people know, man, this thing is excellent. You need to know about this. You're making it known. Uh, to lavish a person or thing with praise or attention, to respect and give admiration, it's nearly all the same. So, so, you know, we talk about glorifying God, but we glorify a lot of other things than just God. My wife has said since we've been married several years now that I glorify food, and it's true, it's, it's true. I will glorify Chipotle. If you give me five minutes, I will tell you why you should go there after church today and get a burrito bowl. They're good. I like to glorify apple pie, my wife says. Um, she's, it's, just, it's true, fruit pie, it's just good. And I'll try to convince you to eat some pie, unless, of course, it's my pie, 
and then I will not glorify it because I won't want you to know about it. Um, but we glorify all kinds of things. We glorify celebrities in our culture. We, 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 we think that they have worth and they're magnificent and we, we pay them lots of money, sports athletes. We glorify boyfriends and girlfriends. When, when, when we give attention and we, 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 promote, we promote them or being with them, we, we glorify careers, we glorify our looks, we glorify our talents, we glorify a lot of things. But let's be honest, probably the thing, whether we've ever admitted it or thought about it enough, uh, enough is that we glorify one thing more than anything and we glorify ourselves, right? To make excellent, to, to want to build a case for worth and dignity we do that for ourselves more than anything else. That we're constantly trying to build a personal resume, if you will, um, that, that, that speaks about our excellence. We, we want to look good in front of others. We want them to think highly of us. I think I'm jumping ahead in my notes, but I'll just say it now. There was an old movie, probably a lot of you haven't seen it now, but I, rem- I remember my parents always talking about it. I don't know if I ever saw it, but Chariots of Fire. Do you guys remember that movie? It's about these runners. Uh, Eric Little, I think, was the one that he said he ran, and it gives him pleasure. But the, some of the people he ran against, one guy in particular said, listen, I run to justify my existence. That's what he was doing. I run to justify my existence. So for him, running and winning and getting first place gave him glory. It, it affirmed or, or made him feel like he had worth. And so we constantly are striving to build our own personal resume of justification, of excellence. That this, is why, this is how I have worth. Yeah, I may not be good at this, but I'm good at that. You know, I may not have the looks, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm really athletic. Whatever it might be. There's this, this thing within each of us that is constantly feeling the pressure to build that personal resume of excellence. But, and what it causes us to do is become those birds. Mine, mine, mine. We grab hold of things and we want people to know it because it, it just comes from deep inside. But listen, whenever we glorify something other than God, we put our attention, we put our worth, we, we, we put excellence, we, we draw attention to something that is temporary. And if that is true, we are setting ourselves up for major disappointment. And so I told you a moment ago, God wants to set us free from this madness. So we're going to talk today about the fact that our lives are not supposed to be lived for ourselves, and I think it's an act of freedom that God has given us to us. So, so what is not yours? My life. Now, we like to say that. Always sounds like a teenager, right? It's my life. Stay out of it. <laughs> but uh, not just teenagers say that. It's my life. I can do what I want with it. I mean, there's, there's times where we just say that. Listen, it's my life. Just butt out. Stay out. And, and we're, we're thinking it's my life. Listen, let me ask you a question. Have you ever lost actually by winning? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Have you, ever, have you ever lost when you've actually won? Let me put it this way. Have, have you ever won an argument with someone, but then you lost a relationship with them in the midst of it? You ever done that with a spouse or a coworker or a friend? You, you won a game, but you lost camaraderie and friendship and in the spirit of the game in the midst of winning the game, right? You ever, you ever won, parent, you ever won a lesson with your kids and lost your kids' heart? I've done that. Yeah, 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 I, I, I showed them that I was right, but you know what? I lost their heart in the process. You know, have you ever uh, won a promotion at work but lost your family or lost moments and seasons with your family in order to win that promotion? You ever... Uh, won an argument again but lost respect or lost maybe your, your witness of being a follower of Jesus in the midst of it. 
Have we ever won a great desire, goal, or anything? Just won something, but it cost us our relationship with God. I, I bet you we all would say yes to some one or another that, you know, at this, the expense of winning something, it cost us something, we lost something in the process. So let's go to Luke, uh, Luke 9, where, where I had you turn, and we're going to look first at Luke 25, because Jesus talks about this reality that we can win and lose big at the same time. Luke 9, 25, he says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Forfeit, in other words, in other translations, other places in the Gospels, to forfeit and lose your very self. This is what Jesus is saying is, you know, you can win the whole world. You can win all that our world wants, all that it pursues, all that it, that it, it, it glorifies. Be this and do that and look this way and accomplish that. You can win all that, and Jesus said, and lose the most important thing. You can lose yourself, and in fact, really what he's alluding to is you're losing yourself by losing your faith, by losing your relationship with him. And how does this happen? Well, the previous two verses tell us how, how it happens, but how to avoid it as well. But we'll start with first of how it happens. But let's read verses 23 and 24, Luke 9 still. Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, themselves, and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me will save it. Then he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Save my life, I'll lose it. And if I try to lose my life, I'll save it. You ever read that before or heard that and go, what? What is is Jesus talking about? That's okay. It's kind of enigmatic there. It's a little strange. What is he saying? I, I think we can make this simple. First of all, to save my life literally means to rescue it from danger, to rescue it, to preserve it. And so, so how do we save our lives? How do we preserve or rescue our lives? Or in fact, maybe we should ask a, a question before that. Is Jesus right? Are we really trying to save our lives? Or is, is Jesus out in left field? Is, is, is he really not right? I, I think he's right, but let's look at this. Romans 3.23, very short verse, tells us this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What, what this verse is telling us, among a lot of things, is that actually we had glory, but we fell short of it because of our sin. And, and what was our glory? Some of you probably know this. You may not say it out loud in this big room, but we were, we were created with glory. What was our glory? Our athletic ability, our, our, our beautiful looks, or how in shape we were, or, or what we would do with our lives or our career. Was that the glory that God created us with? No, no, no. He created, what was, what was our glory that he created us with? His image, right? We were to be his image bearers and reflect his glory. We were, we were created with glory, and so we were not supposed to be searching for glory, searching to justify our worth and our existence and our excellence because it was put into us in the garden. But because of sin, we lost that connection with God. It broke that. Even though we're still in his image, it broke that. So now we become people that are trying to recover this intrinsic worth and excellence that God gave us on no merit on our own. And now we're trying with merit to try to recapture it. And when we do that without God, let me just tell you, it's exhausting. And it's an endless pursuit. I mean, you'll never reach it. So, so Jesus is absolutely right, and I'll tell you why he's right. I mean, we look in our culture, we know he's right. I said, I said earlier, by definition, to glorify something is to, to make it acknowledged and make it known. And so because we've lost our glory, but our intrinsic worth that was just given to us by God, now we're constantly glorifying ourselves. That's just proof that Jesus is right. We're trying to save ourselves in the sense that we're trying to recover what we've lost. That's why we glorify ourselves. I mean, if I'm really honest, 
right? And maybe no one would admit this. I'll admit it. I mean, when I walk in a room, I, mean, I, want, I want people to like me. I want them to think highly of me. I, I, I want them to have a, a, a good opinions of me. And, you know, and, you know and, and we don't want to admit that, but that's, I think that's within each of us, that, that somehow there's something missing, and so we're seeking to get it. And that pursuit was not, was not in the garden. That came later after Romans 3, the, for all have sinned. Listen, here's a quote from a, from a pop star icon in our culture. I won't tell you who it is first. This person has had reached just uber success. Listen to this quote. This is just from a few years ago. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push part one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Wait till you hear who this is. <laughs> I just, I'm a worry that I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again and again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. So interesting. It's like reading the Bible from someone's personal perspective. So I've lost this thing. Even though I'm somebody, I keep pursuing it, and every time I think I got there, I, I'm haunted by this medi mediocrity that must be there. And what is that? That's the disconnect from this intrinsic value given to us in the glory of God in our, in our beings that you cannot recover on your own. You know who said this? Really interesting. Madonna. Interesting. She's worried about becoming uninteresting. Tells you a little bit about her and her songs and her, her, just her life that she's really trying not to be uninteresting. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? She's trying to, to go against the lie she keeps hearing over and over and over in her head, and as far out and as outlandish as she goes, it never seems to quench this inner ache that says, you're mediocre, you're uninteresting. It's not enough. We become obsessed with building a case for our worth and excellence, just like she's done. She's no different than any of the rest of us. We're looking for recognition and through money or sex or relationships, careers, whatever it is. But here's the thing. All this amounts to enormous pressure. I'll put it this way. Um, among a lot of sports that I like to watch, um, I think golf is a very interesting one. I know some are like, oh, Lord. Well, I like to watch the majors, okay? And this is why I think it's so interesting. I mean, there's, yes, in basketball, March Madness has been pretty good. Uh, you might get to a guy every now and then that might have to make a free throw to win the whole game. But, of course, you know, in the NBA, they're already getting paid, right? They're already getting paid. Golfers, they get paid if they win, Right? There's no money unless they win. And every year, especially in the majors, when these tournaments are worth a million or two, and some of these people have never made anything. They've made 50000 75000 They're squeaking by. And all of a sudden, they have a round of their life, four rounds in a row over a weekend, and they're looking out. This happened several times, even since I moved to Gettysburg. They're looking at a five-foot putt that is going to change the rest of their life. Right, Dustin Johnson, this happened to him a couple different times, the, the Open Championship in England. I mean, he's just looking at this putt. This is going to change his life. He'll have millions of dollars. He's not an athlete. He's already gotten paid. He makes this. He makes millions. He has fame. And they choke. And these players like Tiger Woods just ate people up years ago because he had millions of dollars. He misses the putt. He goes home. He doesn't even feel a change in his life. And these golfers admit to the enormous pressure of winning it the first time because if they choke, they miss everything, their dreams, everything they hope for. And it becomes this enormous pressure in their life. And you know what? We may not be looking over a five-foot putt, but we do this in our lives. 
We do this. We think, if I don't get that promotion, something's going to happen. If I don't get into the right college or if I don't get the right grades, I won't get into the next place. I won't get the right job if I don't get in this relationship. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves like these professional athletes looking over a five-foot putt wondering, if I miss this, everything could go wrong. And it becomes this enormous pressure that, we, that begins to build on us. And I know you guys are going to laugh at me, but I, I was thinking about this last few days, and God gave me this funny illustration. I haven't seen one of these in years. When I was a kid, we used to have these things called water wigglies. You ever remember these things? You hold on to them. I got it for my kids. And, and, um, and you're, you're, they're... they're, they're they're, um, they're stress, stress relievers, which is ridiculous because if I'm stressed and I'm holding on to this thing, I'm getting more angry that I can't hold on to it. I, I don't, to me, it wouldn't do any good. But the whole idea is I handed it to Nathan and Zachary yesterday, and, they, and I, said, I said, here, just try to hold it. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. I said, no, 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 squeeze it. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, it's going everywhere, right? And it's like the whole idea is that the more you, you kind of grab it and squeeze it, the, the more it starts to come out of your hands. And you know what? I think this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 9. You know, it's really easy to hold this when you have it with your hand open. It's so simple. But the tighter you grip it and the more you hold on to it, the chances of it beginning to slip out of your hand becomes greater. And you know, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to free you from when he says, oh, you know what? Just give up your life. Because the more you try to find justification, you try to glorify yourself, the tighter you begin to hold on to, the easier things begin to slip through your hands. You know, it's even worse. I mean, you get angry because you drop it. You miss an opportunity. You miss the putt, whatever that is. You miss the job, the promotion. You, you miss the career. But you know what else? Sometimes we hand these little idols over to other people. And so we hand them to our kids and we say, make something of yourself. I didn't. I want you to make something. Get a good job. And then they don't behave exactly like you like. And then we get angry and we put pressure on them to hold it. Or we, we expect our jobs or we expect God or all these. And then when, they, when, they, when it slips, we're just angry. What in the world is your problem? And, we just, and Jesus is like, well, this is the idea, is that it's not hard if you just let go. You, you, you just, you, you gotta let go, you gotta, you gotta surrender that to him, but that's so hard to do because, because of the fact that we're disconnected with the Lord, we just wanna grip tighter and tighter. Listen, there's a great example of this in scripture in the book of uh, Esther. Esther was um, um, a, a Jewish woman who ended up becoming queen of this nation. King Xerxes got really mad at his wife. He booted her out of the the harem there, and said, I'm going to find a new one. And they did a beauty contest. And Esther won, this Jewish woman. She has an uncle named Mordecai. And uh, he's, he, he's, he just lives his life like, like normal. And there's this other man named Haman, who's second in charge of all of the nation. And Haman is so insecure, so into self-glorification, that he makes the king pass a rule that says, whenever I pass by, everybody has to bow down and worship me. This is what I said a moment ago. You know what? None of us want to admit this, but that's kind of what we want, Right? I mean, we want when we walk in that people would, oh, here's so-and-so, oh, here's this part. We don't want to admit that, but that's what we want. When we walk in, we want our family, we want people to just fall in line, do things right. So Haman, here he is. He gets so mad at Mordecai because Mordecai's a Jew. No, you're not supposed to bow down to anybody but Yahweh. So he won't do it. Now listen to the heart of Haman here in Esther 5. Haman went out that day happy and high spirits. And the reason he was was because he got invited to a banquet with just the king and Esther. So it's like he got the raise. He got the promotion. He got the relationship. He got the money, the car, whatever he's always wanted. So he's coming home all happy. You'd think, wouldn't, isn't that enough? But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. He called together all his friends and his wife. He's going to have a party and let them all know how wonderful he is, literally. 
Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, listen, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he'd been elevated him above all the nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet that she gave. She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. He is second in command of the entire nation. He has everything he's ever wanted. And then here's so telling of his heart, of Madonna's heart, and our hearts. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. It's just not enough to have everything when there's one thing that I don't have. Because if he got Mordecai to do it, well, you think he'd have been happy? I don't think so. I would have found the next thing. This is just exists in the human heart. I don't know what the deal is with those Norwegians, but have you checked out the study again? They're like five years in a row. They're the happiest people on the planet. Sherry, I don't know where Thor is, but you just tell them that we're all jealous. You know, these Norwegians, they're just, they win every year. You know, America doesn't even make the top 10. I think we're like 14th. And this is really interesting when they look at, like, they study this, like, why is Norway and Switzerland and Sweden, all these places, more happy than everything else? And they've always really focused on, on economic factors. And now they're starting to realize because the economy has grown faster in America, people make more money than they do in Norway, and it hasn't brought them happiness. Oh, maybe we ought to look somewhere else. You know what they started looking at is the, the, the social part of life. And they say that, kind of like I shared with you earlier with Zachary, that, that people in these other nations, they find greater satisfaction and joy because they're not as lonely, they're more connected. And I think it's really interesting because, right, our nation was built on a premise that you ought to have the right to an individual pursuit of happiness. And the problem is, in all of our pursuits to make us happy, we've lost the very thing that we built our country on. Right, Because it's not about my individual pursuit of becoming happy. In fact, if we really wanted to do it, we ought to change it. No one will do this. We ought to make it about the collective pursuit of everybody else's happiness. I bet you we would rise on the list. I bet you, I bet you we'd rise up because it's not about that. And the more we try to do that, the more we try to prove ourselves, the worse it becomes. So what's the solution? How do we lose our lives in order to save them? How do we do it? Well, Jesus gives us a really good clue here. He says in Luke 9, 23 and 25, he said to them, we already read this, but let's read the first part. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This is really interesting. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. You know, there's a couple ways to define deny, and oftentimes people have have defined this the wrong way, which has led to all sorts of weird cults and different things. The, the, the first way to, de, to deny something is part A, to affirm that you have no acquaintance or connection with something, like Peter did with Jesus. Here's what's interesting. This passage in Luke 9, what Jesus is talking about, is not definition A, it's definition B. Definition B is this, forget or lose sight of yourself and your interests. Why is that important? Because Jesus is not telling you to disconnect yourself from yourself. Or a lot of people have done where they, they, they hurt themselves, they, 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 they do t- things to their bodies, they, 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 they don't do certain things, and basically what they're doing is they're repeating what Jesus has already done for us. That's done with. Jesus is not saying you need to disconnect yourself from yourself. What is he doing? It's so simple. He says forget or lose sight of yourself. So interesting. Have you ever just lost track of time? I mean, you're so involved in a conversation or reading a book or watching a movie or playing Candy Crusher, I don't know, and you, all of a sudden you realize you missed three days of work, and no, I'm just kidding. Um, but you know, you're doing something, you get caught up, and you just lose all track of time. This is really as simple as this, this is what Jesus is saying. You know, you really want to save your life? You, you put me at the focus of it in such a way that you know you can trust me and look to me, that you just begin to lose track 
of your interests and the things that you need. Can you imagine, just imagine with me before we, we, we close here in a minute. Can you imagine what a day would be like if you had zero thoughts about yourself? Can you imagine that day? No thoughts about how you look or what you don't look like. No thoughts about what people have said to you yesterday or 10 years ago. No thoughts about how much money you have or you don't have. Or, you know, if you think about it, almost all your fears, almost all your worries have to do with you. I mean, I don't think it, very many of us wake up, sometimes we do, but most of the time we don't wake up and we're just so stressed about somebody else. I think occasionally we are, but most of what stresses us out, most of us, most of that, the pressure that is on us is about ourselves. Can you imagine if we lost sight of the fact that you're single or you're divorced or your marriage is in trouble or if you forgot about the debt you're in or financial trouble, you lose sight of how you've been treated or forget about your future. It's not that you don't care about those things. It's just that they just don't become the obsession. They're not the things you're, you're holding on to and trying to control and fix. And you just said, you know what, today, God, I'm just going to totally trust you with that. Can you imagine? You know, what, you know what I would say that would be like? You know, if you've ever been in school and had a final exam or if you're in the medical industry and you were getting ready to pass the boards or if you're a lawyer trying to pass the bar exam or sometimes even wedding days or just when you have something that's coming up that you just are having to think and study and plan for. You, you've been there, right? You have some, oh, the presentation you have to do or something. What is that feeling like the moment you're done? I mean, isn't it a good feeling? That's exactly what Jesus means when he says, come who are all heavy laden and burdened and I will give you rest. You know what he's saying? He says, if you come to me, you cut all the pressure off that you've been building to perform and to control and to make right. And if you come to me and you realize that you just lay your life out before me and you trust me, he says, you'll come to rest. It's just like that feeling when it's all said and done. Oh, I'm glad that's over. That's exactly what Jesus says it can be like when we follow him. If you will lose your life, if you'll lose trying to grasp it and hold on to it and make it all work and glorify yourself and you just let me do it, oh, you'll find it. You probably have heard people say this, don't ever mess with somebody who has nothing to lose. You ever heard anybody say that? Don't, don't get in a fight. That's what I always heard when I was growing up. Don't get in a fight with someone who's got nothing to lose. Why? Because they got no fear and they'll take all the risks and I mean, nothing's gonna stop them. Here, I'll leave you with this today. We'll close with this. When Jesus says, man, give up your life and you'll find it, you know what he invites us to do? He says, if you'll live your life for God's glory and not your own, you'll live like someone that has nothing to lose because you don't. You don't. You see, what we're all doing is living our lives trying to keep from losing things, whether now or in the future. Can you imagine if your day changed today because of Jesus and you no longer lived worrying about what you're gonna lose or what you're not going to get, but you live your life. Can you imagine what God would do with even just 600 people in one church if they said, God, i got nothing to lose? Can you imagine what he would do to change Gettysburg and the world, your neighborhoods and communities? If we just said, God, there's nothing to lose. That's what Jesus invites us to do. It. He invites us there. That's, that's not cavalier or, 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 or dangerous because you're not trusting me or a church or somebody else. You're just saying, Jesus, I follow you and I'm trusting you. And when you do that, when you build for him and his glory, you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose. You have it all already. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Oh God, the freedom from fear and anxiety and worry and stress. Lord, there's people in this room, we have lost so much in our winning we become so successful owning businesses and making money and, and doing things, and yet we've lost such important things. And yet I even feel today, church, listen, 
I even feel today God is saying that none of those things are totally lost. Not if you make decisions even today to stop holding on to those things and grasping those things and letting the important things in your life slip through your fingers. There's some of you here today, listen, it's just be straight up and honest. What Jesus said that you're, you're gaining the world, but you're losing your soul, you're losing yourself. Some of you, that's true. You're here. Yeah, you may be successful, maybe you're not, but all that you're doing, all that you're working for, all that you're holding on to, you know that your spirit is, is dead, it's dying. You know you don't have a relationship with God. Listen, the Bible says it's not enough to attend a church. It's not enough even to believe in God. Did you know that? James says the demons believe in God. doesn't do them a bit of good. What changes our life is when we give them to God. And some of you have never done that. You've attended church. You believe in God, but you've never given your life to Jesus. You never turned your sin over to him. Today's the day. Today's the day. It's not your life. It's his life. Stop trying to live it. It's just miserable give it to him. Who are you today? No one's looking around, just me and you. Would you look up at me? Would you raise your hand? And I just want to agree with you. You're ready to make that choice today. Who, who would like to do that? Yeah, I see you right there in the back. Amen. Yeah, who else? Who else? I don't want to miss you. Wave at me if I don't see you. Man, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Lord, one, one more question, church, before we go. Thank you, Lord, for this one. I'm not going to look around. No one's looking around. You don't need to look up at me, but I, I feel like you need to make a, a movement towards the Lord this morning before you leave. Let's be honest. It's not that any of us here are living totally for God's glory. No one can say that. We've got areas in our life, but where is the Lord speaking to you today? Where is he speaking to you about where you've been justifying your existence, where you've been holding on to things so tightly and you know it, you're wound tight. This has to come through. You're so afraid to lose it. And you're ready to live as someone who is ready to live like someone who has nothing to lose. So if you really are, give it over to him. Whatever it is, give it to him today. Would you, if that's you, if you whatever it is that God's speaking to you about, would you just lift your hand to the Lord for a moment as I close us in prayer? Just keep your hand up for just a moment. Lord, you, you, know, what, you know what each of these things are. You know what our hands represent, Lord. I don't know. We're handing stuff over to you today. We're ready to live like someone who has nothing to lose, Lord. And I pray that we would really mean it and we would, you would take this and we'd really go somewhere with it as we totally trust you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, that we can be delivered from trying to run and control and do our own life. Lord, we give it to you today for you to use and we live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Before you go today, man, come down front, especially if you're meeting Jesus or if you'd still like to or you're responding anyway. There's some people up here I'd love to meet with you. Go to foursquarechurch.info and get in a mini church Let's have some more discussion about this. I think it would make a big difference in your life. Go, uh, go online and go do that or go to the group's tent before you go. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next Sunday, all right? Take care.